From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. Welcome to our post-pandemic party. No more masks, no more lockdown, no more nightly news reporting the death toll. But yeah, speaking of that, COVID is actually killing more people than ever. Barely got a mention in the election campaign, save Anthony Albanese's time in isolation. And experts are divided over whether it's a fading threat or a looming one. Now, to get a bit of a bird's eye view about where we're really at with COVID, I've invited Bianca Nograde to join us today in the tea room. Bianca has faithfully provided the Medical Republic's live COVID blog for the past two years. She's president of the Science Journalists Association of Australia and has been published in, well, it's a bit of a long list, but the, the Guardian, MIT Technology Review and British Medical Journal, just to name a few. So, will monkeypox fill the void that SARS-CoV-2 has left, or does COVID still deserve the limelight? Let's find out. Thanks for joining us, Bianca. Thanks so much, Wendy. Good to be here. Is COVID fading as a threat? No, far from it. I think, in fact, the opposite is true, that we're in a greater danger than we've ever been because we're dealing with a variant that's so much more transmissible than previous variants, namely Omicron and all of its little offspring, the subvariants. But at the same time, we have effectively rolled back pretty much every public health measure that we had in place for the first two years of the pandemic. And we're kind of carrying on as if there's no threat at all. And the cost of that is revealing itself in our daily death toll and then the number of people who've died. Even just since the start of the year, I mean, we're now up around more than 8,000 deaths and that's up from about 2,500 at the end of 2021. So we've had, we've had a kind of a threefold increase in deaths and yet, you know, you get on a train, you go to a restaurant, you go to a cinema, you go anywhere in public and people are carrying on as if there is no more pandemic. It's quite jarring and I can't imagine how much of a, you know, <laughs> how much this must be messing with the minds of infectious diseases and public health experts. So what are they saying? Well, I mean, there's, an, I think, an overwhelming consensus that we have become far, far too complacent with deaths from COVID. And I think it's it's really bizarre and it's quite jarring to think, you know, like you said, we're used to those sort of daily press conferences where the number of deaths would be announced in each state and their ages and their vaccination status often. Mm. And that was when the deaths were in the tens to twenties. And that was shocking. Whereas now we have, you know, 80 people will die in a day and, and there's barely a, a, a whisper. And it's not like, these deaths are, it's not like these are kind of deaths that we could say that, look, these are just part of the background. You know, these are people who would not be dead, who would be alive if it wasn't for COVID. So this, there's no comparison to, you know, influenza, for example. I think we had a, a shocking influenza season. I think it was in 2019 from memory. And I think there was seven or 800 deaths that year, of that entire year. So we're seeing that now, you know, not even that, in a month. We've, we're seeing way, way more than that in a month. So what do you think is actually going on? I think that it's people are fatigued. They want this pandemic to be over and unfortunately wishing doesn't make it happen. I think also politically, well, the public health measures became very polarising politically to the extent that there was no possibility of nuance. It was a sort of sense that 
you either had lockdowns and everything that went along with that, or you have nothing. And I think there was a sense of frustration, certainly just amongst public health people on Twitter and, and, and infectious diseases and epidemiologists, that we weren't able to take a nuanced approach, for example, like now, still advising mask use. And certainly people who have concern about their own health and the health of others are still wearing masks, but that's vastly in the minority. Whereas, I mean, that that is such a cheap and... I wouldn't say massively effective, but it's certainly effective enough at reducing the risk that it was, it does seem quite baffling that something like that has been, has been completely abandoned. Whereas, I mean, obviously other measures like stay-at-home restrictions is the most extreme and that obviously we've been through that quite a lot and I can't imagine that would ever be introduced again unless perhaps we have a variant that's massively more severe. But, you know, things like density limits within restaurants and cafes, I mean, that's a lot harder because that has a massive economic cost. Likewise, those sort of reductions, I guess, and closing of shops, the economic toll of that was very evident. And I think that was politically very unpopular and particularly in an election year, it's pretty hard for any government to say, well, this is what we're going to do to control COVID. And I, I wonder if perhaps governments have kind of just given up on COVID. It certainly feels like that. I wonder if people, uh, populations have as well, like how long does it take for a novel danger to become a bit, uh-huh, you know, let's think, look at how people perceive and respond to risk when it's new as opposed to dangers of getting in a car or, you know, crossing the street, which are really significant risks if you if you live in the city. Yeah, I I guess, I mean, you know, this is sort of a human psychology question and I think there is sort of evidence and I can't cite that obviously, but, you know, we're used to responding to fast-moving dangers, which is why we're so terrible at at, um, responding to climate change also because, you know, politics is corrupt by the fossil fuel industry, but that's a whole other question. You know, similarly with smoking, you know, it's a slow risk, it's a slow danger and so it's not immediate and in front of us. And whereas COVID for many people has been, people have lost loved ones or, you know, people are experiencing terrible long COVID effects or even have had really acute COVID symptoms and COVID infections. So it's a, it seems to be in a weird space between those two extremes of being relatively invisible or right in your face and fast moving. And I, I think the thing is that what's happening now is that it's putting the burden of responsibility onto the vulnerable as opposed to society taking care of those who who are vulnerable you know it, it, you know it, when we when this all started it was very much couched in terms of you know look after yourself and look after others you know wear a mask protect others um, stay at home protect others protect the vulnerable don't visit your grandparents because you might expose them and i think that was what was so heartening about the the first couple of years of the pandemic was the sacrifices that so many people made to protect others. I found that incredibly positive in some ways. And I think we've we've kind of seemed to have slipped back into that idea that, well, no, the people who are vulnerable, you know, the immunocompromised, the disabled, the elderly, they can wear masks, you know, they can protect themselves, they can stay at home, you know, which puts the burden on people who are already burdened (laughs) um, to protect themselves when really, you know, if everyone wore masks, it would probably make a big difference. It would make things safer for people who are uh, vulnerable to take part in society. To get out and be a part of life again. If I could play devil's advocate for a little while, you've had your head in COVID very deeply Day in, day out, you've been tracking those stats like no one else I know. And it is possible that 
there's perhaps a an elevated sense of of concern or fear that you have because that has been such a huge part of your life occupationally is it possible that you might have a bit of a an elevated sense of concern around this compared to someone else Oh, I definitely have an elevated level of concern because I record every day the numbers of infections and the numbers of deaths. And I think, you know, when you see things like the recent stats that came out of the Australian Bureau of Statistics looking at mortality rates for the first two months of this year, COVID was the fourth highest cause of death in Australia. And that was after, I think, cerebrovascular disease, cardiovascular disease, and perhaps lung disease or dementia. I can't remember exactly which one. But what was staggering was the excess deaths that occurred was substantially higher than the actual recorded deaths. What we're seeing is the daily figures and the daily death counts and the daily infection counts are just the tip of the iceberg. This is actually a lot worse than we think it is, but it's going on in the background, you know, that this disease is now predominantly killing the elderly, it's killing, you know, compromised people, it's killing people with disabilities, which we've known all along was going to be the case. But often those people are invisible to society. You know, well, let's talk about that for a bit because some of the conversation has been, well, the median age of deaths are people in their 80s and that, okay, there's people who are most vulnerable are dying. It's not the young and the healthy what is the conversation happening in that space? What are your concerns about that? Well, I think it's it's appallingly ageist to even think that just because somebody has reached a certain age that that their life is worth any less than the life of somebody who's in their 20s. And I, I remember there was a fantastic ad on TV, this must have been years ago, and it was about car accidents and should we be driving slower? And it's like, well, it'll only say, you know, if we do this, it'll save 50 lives or whatever if we if we slow down. And then, you know, they interview people and ask them, well, what do you think about that? And these people are like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. And then when they actually say, well, what if those 50 lives were your family and they actually have their family walk down the street towards them, 50 people from their immediate oh, wow, friends yeah. and family. And that's what I think, you know, when we have these discussions and, and you know, when this this kind of notion of it's it's the elderly who are dying. It's the it's people with disabilities. It's people who are immunocompromised. It's it's very easy to just say that and not process it. But if you imagine that every elderly person in your life, or any person with a disability in your life, or who's immunocompromised, if suddenly fifty people in your immediate circle was wiped out, the discussion really around COVID has now become how much death are we comfortable with? How many lives lost are we prepared to sit with and to, in, to effectively ignore for the sake of not wearing a mask in public or for but the isn't sake... That, isn't that a question, though, that we ask about every single disease when it comes to how much do we spend on prevention? How much do we spend on finding a cure? I mean, it is an a unfortunate but necessary question when people are applying funding. Absolutely. It, it's a health economics question. But in this case, we're not asking about cost. We're asking about what people are prepared to do. And, and I think for me, it comes down, I mean, obviously vaccination, everybody's got vaccinated because vaccination protects you first and foremost and, the, and those around you. Masking is a different thing, you know, that, it, well, it's, it's different and it's not. I mean, obviously it's less effective than vaccination, but it can still make a big difference to how much of a risk you pose to those around you. Of course, yeah. So would you say as a minimum that mask wearing, or would you say that as a maximum mask wearing should be something that is useful right now? 
Again, with the caveat that I'm not a public health expert, my experience of reporting this over the last two years suggests that mask wearing is the simplest, the cheapest, the most accessible method that we've got at the moment to reduce the spread of this virus. Even with, I mean, obviously Omicron is much more, much, much, much more contagious. Masks are less effective with Omicron, but they're still they still reduce the risk. They are better than nothing. And, you know, I think, well, if we said to people, look, if you go shopping, if you go to the supermarket, if you go on public transport, if you're at work, wear a mask. I mean, obviously, though, people who, there are some people who cannot wear masks and that's absolutely understandable. But it's such a small thing for people to do when they're out and about that for us to have abandoned that at a time when we've got a, a variant more contagious than any we've ever seen. We've got death rates higher than we've ever seen before. For us to not even be considering implementing some kind of mandatory mask wearing in public, because it, it has a, to be mandatory, otherwise people won't do space. it. Yeah, it's, it is a weird kind of a space when you when you look at the numbers, when you look at the options. Mm. Yeah, we're in a strange, we're not, we're not post-pandemic party yet then is basically oh, what you're saying. Oh, far from it, far from it. We've got, look, we've got higher infection rates, well, certainly in Australia than we've ever had. There will be a new variant. This is what I think is, is really alarming or concerning from my perspective is that all of these infections that are out there, you know, this virus is constantly mutating. It's constantly changing. And we're seeing that with all of the Omicron subvariants. And the reason that they're known as subvariants, not variants, is because they haven't so far shown enough mutations to change the disease severity or the disease presentation. So they're not enough to say, yes, this is a new variant of concern. But, you know, you look at the frequency with which these new variants cropped up. You know, we had we had alpha, we had beta, we had gamma, delta, we've had all of these kind of variants of concerns and now Omicron. It, it's only a matter of time before another one comes along. And I think what's challenging is that because we've normalised not doing anything, which makes it a lot harder for us to then get back into that mindset of protecting ourselves and protecting others. Whereas if we'd kept mask wearing up as a bare minimum, then I feel like we would be in in a much better position. I mean, you look at so many Asian countries where mask wearing is normalized. If you have a respiratory infection, you wear a mask. Uh, And for some reason in, you know, Western countries in Australia, we just seem to have a problem with that. And I I just don't understand it, given that we know we know that it reduces the risk. We absolutely know that. There's no question about it. So to my mind, it's such a small thing when you look at, you think of every family who's lost a loved one or, you know, grandparents. I mean, that's an uncalculable toll, an emotional toll. And not only that, those deaths are not good deaths. These are people who would be isolated. They wouldn't be able to be seen by their loved ones. They would have to be farewelled and still farewelled from a distance through an iPad. Is that still what's happening in hospitals? That yeah, can- as far as I know, I think, you know, the COVID wards, people don't go sailing into COVID wards. It's, this isn't like somebody, you know, dying from a non-communicable disease. This is still going to be a lockdown scenario for people who are dying of COVID in the intensive care ward. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's, mm. that's an awful way to lose someone. It's certainly an awful way to go. And I think, you know, we're neglecting that sort of generational toll that's going to, to come of ha- having written a book about death. <laughs> there is a generational toll that comes from not being able to farewell somebody, not, not being able to share in someone's passing in, in a meaningful and intimate way, you know, and likewise, the, the cost that that has for the person who's dying as well. And we're not even talking about 
how this is changing death and how this is changing our experience of death and not for the better. So there's so many dimensions to this that I just, you know, it's like just wear a bloody mask for God's sake. It's not hard. (laughs) All right. I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. Are there any glimmers of possibility, any little sparks of sunlight within this whole conversation at the moment? Yeah, look, I think the uh, hope lies with, first of all, better antivirals. And we're starting to see that with Paxlovid, although we're still trying to work out how to use Paxlovid properly because there's a lot of cases of Paxlovid rebound. When people come off it, they come back uh, being infectious again. You know, when we start getting these next generation antivirals that are specifically tailored to SARS-CoV-2, that I think will also change the landscape because it means that people won't die as often, which is really ultimately the goal of this whole thing is to, to stop people dying prematurely. Um, And the other hope, of course, lies in more variant-specific or universal vaccines where, you know, you get vaccinated, perhaps like the flu, where you do get vaccinated every year, but it's extremely effective at preventing you from getting sick. Or what would be even even better is one vaccine and it's essentially variant-proof. But those are a way away. I think we're more likely to see better antivirals in the short term. So I think the hope lies in us not dying from this and not getting so sick from it that we still experience long COVID, we still spread it to other people. But, uh, you know, I don't know what's on the horizon. I certainly haven't heard any glimmers yet, so it could be a couple of years away. Thank you very much for joining us, Bianca Nogretti. Thanks, Wendy. That was science journalist Bianca Nogretti. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.